cancer industry specifically. It has changed dramatically. The field of biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers from INRS in Quebec City have introduced a method for tuning a laser spectrum to the infrared range. In collaboration with international partners, a team led by Luca Rosari used a hollow core fiber filled with nitrogen to deliver optical pulses shorter than those delivered by the input laser and with a high spatial quality. National Institute of Standards and Technologies and University of Maryland researchers demonstrated the ability to convert invisible near-infrared laser light into multiple visible colors using newly introduced microchip technology. The approach in generating red, yellow, and green laser light, among other colors, on integrated microchips supports the implementation of technology necessary to ensure precision timekeeping and to conduct quantum information science. A research group at Friedrich Schiller University of Jena in Germany developed an ultra-fast fiber laser capable of delivering an average power that is more than 10 times that of existing high-powered lasers. The technology aims to improve both speed and efficiency of industrial-scale materials processing. A joint development between University of Cambridge scientists and 3D image analysis software company Loom VR Limited is enabling the visualization of super-resolution microscopy data, data that can be analyzed in 3D using VR. By applying the VR software, known as VLoom, to study individual proteins and cells, end-users of the software are able to observe molecular processes as they happen. And finally, by connecting superconducting quantum bits to a microwave transmission line, MIT researchers demonstrated how qubits can generate on-demand photons needed to support communication between quantum processors. The demonstration is a step towards reliably achieving the interconnections that would enable a modular quantum computing system capable of performing at speeds exponentially faster than classical computers. Up next, news editor Jake Saltzman continues his conversation with Stanford University's Manu Prakash, and later, an interview with recently named OSA fellow Sujatha Ramanajan. I'm Joel Williams, and this is All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by Comsol, the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling, imaging, and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing and communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com. Today on All Things Photonics, 
we bring you part two of our conversation with Dr. Manu Prakash, Stanford University professor of bioengineering, inventor of the Foldscope microscope, and frugal science innovator. In the first part of our conversation, available on our website and wherever you get your podcasts, Dr. Prakash discusses the inspiration behind the Foldscope and the long road to having more than one million Foldscopes in the hands of users around the world. We also talk about frugal science as a scientific framework, the simple joys of tinkering, and the pressures placed on scientists today. That and more can be heard on Episode 2, Season 2 of All Things Photonics. Here now is Part 2 of our conversation with Dr. Manu Prakash. You have traveled a distinctly nonlinear path in microscopy, from making a microscope from a pair of bifocals when you were seven, to working with the highest industry-grade machinery, to ultimately developing a origami-folded, mass-produced microscope. Why is microscopy such an appealing introductory scientific technology? <laughs> I just love microscopes. I mean, just the history of the field and how much you can learn by just watching is mind-boggling to me. I mean, I, think I just I cannot believe a field of science that just suddenly shakes people up. I mean, it's it's visual, it's emotional. You are face to face with this unknown almost sometimes monster-like life forms. It really is hard to boggle and think about how everything fits together in our life. I mean, just to me, the world makes sense only through the lens of a microscope. Otherwise, nothing in my life just makes sense. I mean, you could take COVID as an example. You could just be convincing people forever, hey, wear a mask, you know, it's going to, but nobody's seen these invisible droplets. You could really just literally do breathe for two seconds on a or cough on a glass slide and you will literally see what everybody and the uh, CDC has been talking about. So to me, microscopy is a science that just connects so many fields together. I mean, there is the beauty of optics to begin with, such a beautiful use of light. But the final result sometimes is just so spectacular. I almost think of it as a miniature aha moment. Every single time I've put an object under a full scope, for that matter, or many other microscopes, and if I had not looked at that before, I have always been surprised, and it's bent my intuition for what I was expecting to see versus what I saw. So, you know, just both personally and I feel, you know, if you were to survey generally, how many people have actually experienced the microscopic world? And I would argue that number truly might be less than a percent of the population on this planet. And that just is not acceptable to me. I truly feel microscopy needs to be a dinner term. And, you know, we've joked about this of full scoping being a verb where while you're eating your pizza and something doesn't taste right, you're going to pull out your full scope and really look at the cheese and say, huh. Did I see something different? You know, you've opened the door now. I, I have to ask, is microscopy a dinner table discussion in the Prakash household? <laughs> yeah, my wife is also a faculty, a biophysicist, and she uses million-dollar microscopes to tease apart cells and figure out the innards of the cells. So that that is actually true. I have two uh, four-year-old girls, uh, twins, and I think, you know, it's embedded in their life. Every conversation we have, eventually they want to know, okay, so what does it really look like? And to me, I do most of this for the personal joy as well. It's not just about thinking about others per se, because 
when as scientists, the day that science stops being fun for us, then it doesn't make any sense to me. So just to me, the personal experience is as important as the fact that then you can bring that experience to other people. I want to read an excerpt from a profile that Carolyn Corman wrote about you um, about five years ago. And I quote, Prakash arrived at MIT in 2002. He did most of his PhD research at Neil Gershenfeld Center for Bits and Atoms, an interdisciplinary program with generous funding and a stable of manic inventor prodigies. Quote, a place where Manu can be Manu. Those words at the end came from Dr. Gershenfeld, a place where Manu can be Manu. Uh, take your best shot at telling us what you think he means. <laughs> you really have to ask Neil what he meant. Uh, you know, I didn't have a linear path in science. You know, I wasn't the top student in my undergraduate. I was never uh, the top student in my school. And sometimes, to a certain extent, I've just felt that the way education systems are built is based on what we know as a knowledge base comes first than what we don't know. So to me personally, it's always been about being able to tinker and informal ways of learning have been very important. And that can be <laughs> difficult for many people to both understand and also just the space. I mean, you know, I've never, I have a very hard time when people ask, uh, what do you do? Or what science do you work on? Because, you know, I just, I really don't know. And I think, you know, at MIT, I was just trying to find who I am. And I was fortunate that I was given the space and time to just find who I am. And I bumped around many people. I learned from many people, but then I also just spent time alone. And that was extremely important to me. So, you know, when you do things like that, things break, things uh, not always go the right way. But in the end, there is a way because you are learning. And so that personal, I think I often tell everybody who goes through my lab that the goal is, of course, to make important contributions, but the goal is also to find who you are deep inside. Because if you're not honest to ourselves of who you are, then after some time, science will start looking like work and not just a personal expression. So, you know, I feel artists are the best in being able to break these boundaries and just really go for where their gut feeling is and learn along the way. I'm very uh, thankful for MIT to even accept me to begin with, uh, with the kind of grades and scores I had from undergraduate. But on the other hand, they saw something that maybe others might not have seen. It's been a ride, and I think just personally to me, one of the joys has been is uh, in my own mentorship, how do I provide both the kind of freedom that's needed for uh, students that get a chance to work with me? But I'm also very proud of the fact that now, after many years, you know, seven, eight years of my lab, I've been able to train many students and postdocs who now have their own labs, you know, almost seven or eight labs around the world. And that really, to me, is a very proud moment because now they get to experience and share that joy and explore uh, in their own ways and take what they could from uh, experiences with me. So I think what Neil gave me, I try to give to others as well and pass that on. Take me inside uh, your lab. What does a normal day look like? Is there a normal day? <laughs> 
you know, I think just a visual, if you could walk through the lab, you would enter and to the very right, you would see a room which has parasites and snails that we grow that uh, are found all across Africa in Madagascar, Schistosomyces. And you take another step and the room right next to is our Aedes aegypti, one of the mosquitoes that cause dengue. And then you take another step and you find a tank which is filled with continuous culture of a sample that uh, I've been running, uh, which was collected in Monterey Bay. It's kind of a miniature ocean, which smells, the whole uh, lab smells of the ocean. And you take another step and then you find some organisms that uh, were collected in the Red Sea, marine organisms. And then, you know, you go on and on. I think we really have a zoo of organisms, uh, because I deeply believe, you know, watching biology in its true form has uh, a power. Then you turn to the left and then you'll see a sea of optics tables right next to this really messy, dirty ecological samples are all our microscope tables. It's well, currently all the tables are covered with this new machine we have invented. It's called the gravity machine which is these large circular wheels that spin all day long, 24-7, tracking organisms while they're swimming kilometers. And then you turn another right, and then you see a much more traditional wet bench type of a facility. So I think to me, just as a lab, space is very important in how we structure our ideas because space forces a way of thinking. I also run my own machine shop, which is also accessible to the entire building. I had to fight tooth and nail to say that, yes, a bioengineering building should still have a traditional machine shop, and lates and CNCs will never go out of fashion in some sense. So that's kind of the context that I work in. The day-to-day work often ranges from, I still like doing experiments. I have my own projects that I'm very proud of, and It just takes longer, and I'm just a lot more slower. But then on the other hand, we spend a lot of time in the field as well as a lab, and many of our frugal science ideas actually arise in the field. So, you know, COVID has really put a dent on this, but otherwise I would have been taking this call from some of our field sites. And to me, thinking on feet and not always relying on what I have accessible in my own lab is extremely important. So I I have a garage lab at home and I spend a lot of time in toy shops and other places. And it's the collection of these things that lead to the types of ideas that we work on. But I think much more importantly than the space, it's the culture. We never judge each other for the silliness of an idea or a the lab culture, one of the graduate students told me one day, he put it best, is whenever an idea is proposed, everybody else is supposed to respond as and, and then add to it and steer it in ways and forms, not the but culture where you hear an idea and you say, but here are the different reasons it's not going to work. And, you know, in that environment, it does take longer, but then if you are true to the problems that you have chosen to work on, then, you know, you do stumble upon places there that are just nonlinear. And I think, again, this also boils down to I'm very selective to who's part of the lab and is it a good fit? This can be a chaotic environment at best. So, yeah. (laughs) You mentioned um, some of your more recent work and perhaps also the and not but culture contributes here. 
Uh, you mentioned the gravity machine, and mm -hmm. some of this work also includes terms like a virtual reality environment for single cells or a treadmill for water creatures. Tell us a little bit about that work. Yeah, actually, this is a great example of how applied and fundamental science meets each other and then becomes applied again. One of my graduate students, Deepak, and I have been studying schistosomiasis for many years now, five, six years. It's a disease that you get when you walk around in an open freshwater, and the parasite, which is microscopic, in a gigantic lake can swim and find you. And we were curious, how can something so small detect and find a human? So we wanted to watch a parasite swim in situ in Madagascar in a pond. So Deepak and I packed our bags. We actually went to Madagascar. And at that time, we were realizing, I mean, these lakes could be as long as 30 meters deep. So ideally, if you're going to track a single cell travel or the single parasite travel 30 meters, we needed a microscope that's 30 meters tall. And it had to be underwater and all these. And while thinking about these ideas and while packing our bags to go to Madagascar, we literally did take a two-meter microscope to Madagascar, which you can imagine the challenge of fitting that in our uh, suitcases. It occurred to us that it just the problem is much more universal. Fundamentally, for the last 200 years, we've been watching organisms using microscopes under a cover slip. And there is a fundamental limitation of how do you observe subcellular resolution imaging and microscopy of an object that is completely untethered and free to move. We realized we didn't even know this fundamental answer of how far does a cell go in the open ocean, for example, now. And the simple insight we had was instead of a long tube, what if the two ends of the tube were connected? And I literally went to a sports store to buy a hula loop, and we literally built something like a hula loop and put some water in it, put a tiny piece, and we spun it around to kind of create this levitation mechanism. It's We call it a hydrodynamic treadmill. So if the organism is moving up, you take a wheel and you hold it vertical. So now they're like a clock. There are two positions, three o'clock and a nine o'clock. These positions are special because gravity points down. And now if the organism is moving up, you spin the wheel down. And if the organism is moving down, you spin the wheel up. And we do this in a very tight feedback control loop inside a microscope. So in the frame of reference of the lab, the organism never goes anywhere. While in its own frame of reference, it's climbing kilometers. And using this, we have now, we've now taken this gravity machine to the ocean. We have deployed it on marine vessels and studied how marine snow, for example, which is our primary savior of carbon sequestration that happens in the ocean, the mechanisms behind it. We have used it to study single-cell organisms climbing hundreds of meters. So it suddenly opened a completely new way of thinking about life. And especially because life evolved with gravity, the role of gravity is fundamental to the evolution of life. You know, there is one constant in evolution, which is gravity never turned off. So we're really deeply thinking about fundamental ideas about how microorganisms detect gravity and what does it mean. So, you know, this is a torturous path going from studying a disease all the way to now building this new kind of a microscope and then leading to completely new questions in science. 
This is a question that has some, some roots in our conversation. In our conversation, you have taken us to France and Cameroon and now Madagascar. Uh, and this is a COVID-19 question. We know so much less than we don't know about COVID-19. But we do know that it is a, a disease, an ailment, a pandemic that has hit us on a global scale. How will COVID-19 affect the future of science? Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a very big question. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the ways is uh, so many aspects of our current world are really unknown. So I think we just have to appreciate and understand that we have to be agile. But from a scientific context, I think, you know, every single project that I've been working on, we created these open lab notebooks. It was completely open while we were doing the work, not just when the work was done. And that basically led to so many connections and scientists from around the world and, you know, not just scientists, academics, industrial partners, all working together in a virtual sense. So I think it's been a very powerful experience and a model that when you treat things as an emergency, which, you know, climate change and many other problems like malaria, they are all emergencies unfolding in a manner that don't show up in the news the way that it should. But I think, you know, COVID has definitely taught me personally new ways of reaching out to people, giving, and a new way of technology transfer for that matter. Much of the work that we are doing, for example, our puffer fish ventilator, it's an open source ICU ventilator, but we are building a reference design, kind of like the Mozilla or the Chrome browser, and then anybody else can replicate that work and build upon it, but, you know built in a manner such that international partners are equal footing partners. So my one positive hope is that this continues and as a scientific community we realize that we are much stronger than individuals. And it's I'm not talking about big science. You know, big science has been around where you see papers with hundreds of co authors and of course collaborations. That does happen but it's still done in a manner in which it's a who-knows-who kind of a network. And very rarely do you see this open-ended, almost a self-organized groups coming together to tackle problems. So, you know, my hope is there are new models to be seen here. And then, frankly, one of the challenges that I see is really how do you support science to the service of society? I... I really find it hard. I see this big gap, you know, I mean, everything that we have done, the financial challenges of building tools that don't either fit in the current framework of science, which is, you know, show me the best, fastest, smallest something versus the social framework where technology is being actually deployed and used by people. And unless it's really proven and scaled up, there is very little support for it. You know, the World Bank will not going to jump in. So I also see that this is a lesson and this is why the pandemic fell through the cracks. If we had supported surveillance efforts, if we had supported ecologists that had been telling us for so long that we need to be doing this ecological measurement, not because it's going to suddenly tomorrow tell us which pandemic is coming, but if we build upon this science, we will have the capacity. But just, you know, we have not been able to connect the dots in science, and I think I feel it's also a failure of funding and support agencies because they play a big role 
in steering people in directions because, you know, without funds, you can't actually do science to a certain extent, traditional kind of science. So I, I really see that the governments need to learn from this and ask ourselves, why don't we have, I mean, you know, it's just a shame to me that we can't even get behind the sets of organizations that were already in place that were doing much of this global collaboration like the WHO. But I really often feel that federal agencies now have an opportunity to rebuild their scientific networks, be far more global rather than nationalistic, which is what we heard in the news every day. Our guest has been Dr. Manu Prakash. He is a MacArthur Fellow Unilever Colworth Prize recipient in 2020 from the Microbiology Society and Stanford University Professor of Bioengineering. I want to end with one more question, uh, and it's not the most important one that I've asked, but uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on it. Uh, in her profile that we referenced earlier, Carolyn Corman brought up that you have a uh, lab-wide soccer game on Friday afternoons. Uh, this pandemic likely has put uh, at least a hold to that. Can you give us an update on the status of those games? Yeah, the game is definitely on hold, unfortunately. You know, I haven't played soccer for a while. We were just talking about this, that how personal relationships and just face-to-face -face time, it's not the same, you know, sitting on Zoom. And, of course, we have done, we've been very productive. We've done a lot of work. But it's not the same. I am really looking forward to reinitiating our soccer game, but only when it's safe. We had recently some baby showers in the lab with kids being born and other celebrations. And it's just been, it's not been same. I really feel the personal connection and just the, being able to laugh together is something so important as a society. And just unless we can do that, it's not normal. So I'm really hoping uh, we can kick some ball sometime soon, but uh, I'll have to wait. Join us in January for the inaugural Photonic Spectra Conference. Four days of online presentations spanning lasers, spectroscopy, optics, and biomedical imaging. 60 presenters all in one place, focusing on the latest in applications, trends, and advancements. Registration is free. January 19th through the 22nd, right here with Photonics Media. Visit photonics.com slash info for event details. Joining us now is Dr. Sujatha Ramanujan, Managing Director of the Illuminate Accelerator. Sujatha is kind enough to stop by and talk a little bit about the initiative, uh, which has wrapped up its third cohort, supporting OPI startups. Illuminate is based in the heart of the Rochester, New York optics and photonics community, and is currently accepting applications for its fourth cohort. Hi, Sujatha. Hi. So nice to meet you. You as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Accelerator and uh, what it aims to accomplish. So the Luminate Accelerator is for optics, photonics, and imaging company. And we very specifically take companies that are at that stage where they have a prototype, they've formed a business, but they need to get themselves to that next state of, of a business that makes them investable, that has them launching their products. So we take the resources that we have here in the optics community, and we help them build that business. Classes that we teach and seminars, as well as a mentoring and hands-on experience to help those early-stage startups become that next stage of growth. We invest in them, invest time, we invest money, and we have some great mentors to work with them. 
And our end goal is that they be successful. And as such, the photonics community is successful. The region is successful because we hope that employment grows. And on the whole, the industry is promoted. You mentioned some of the distinct opportunities that uh, Luminate provides its uh, its startups. Can you talk a little bit about those? Certainly. So the Rochester community here is an optics community. We have over 150 optics and photonics businesses located in the region. So when a company joins Luminate, some of the very special things that we're able to give them is direct insight and contact with our manufacturing and all of the outsourcing that they may need. If they need parts brought in, if they need someone to help with manufacturing, if they just need someone to talk to. Uh, we have a whole bunch of infrastructure, basically. We also have the Institute of Optics and RIT, so if they need access to laboratories and technology, um, interns and students and staff, they can have that also. We also bring in some of the best-known entrepreneurs and inventors in optics as our advisory board, and each team in Luminate has assigned a couple of advisors, two or three, out of the industry that are well-known and picked for them to coach them for the next six months. The uh, program itself, we offer them, obviously, a dust space, and we have optics laboratories and wet labs, things that are all at their disposal for the time that they're here. And we offer a great deal of online training, meaning, you know, how do you write your financial plan? How do you put together a customer discovery and marketing plan. And finally, we also have a lot of excellent contacts in the industry and in the investment community so that it's not just us investing. We put $100,000 initially into each company, and then we put another up to $2 million in after six to nine months. But we also bring in other investors. We bring in industry investors. We bring in VCs. We bring in corporates and angels to also look at these companies so uh, they get the co-investment from them. My hope is that every single company that we bring into the program thrives and gets the additional investment, the support that they need from the community and from other investors. And so far, we're doing all right. We haven't lost anyone yet, and we have 30 companies in our portfolio. It's, uh, it's, it's quite impressive. We're speaking with Sujatha Ramanujan, who is uh, Managing Director of the Illuminate Accelerator based in Rochester, New York. What types of companies and technologies right now are particularly well-positioned to innovate the optics and photonics space? You know, there's really such a wide breadth of companies that fall into, because optics and photonics being a, a technology discipline, the market disciplines are wide. So between the free space communication, quantum optics, and you know, security, we also see a lot of medical technology. And, that, and we've seen a rise in biophotonics and analytics associated with biophotonics. AR, VR is always very, very popular. But some of these emerging technologies like biophotonics is really kind of interesting. I've seen some LIDAR and technologies associated with LIDAR. It's really kind of a wide breadth of things. Uh, optics and photonics are becoming such an integral part of just about every industry that we're able to see growth in so many different sectors, all enabled by the same set of core technologies. So it's really an exciting time to be in this industry. And you talked about the the broad range of applications and technologies. Adding to that theme, I suppose, of broadness is that this is a truly a global pursuit that Luminate has undertaken here, both with the support system it provides as well as the companies. Talk about the global uh, aspect of this. And, and now you're seeing your you've completed three cohorts. You're seeing companies really from all over the world. Oh, yeah. So this program is an international program, and we're able to bring in companies from all over the world uh, at various stages of their business. So there's several aspects of this program that I think really lend itself to be a good and global program. One is that we can bring folks from everywhere in the world to come here and take part in this. For a lot of companies, especially right now during these COVID times, 
where it's difficult to travel, but they need to get more global presence. By taking part in the Luminate program and accessing the, the resources that we give them, they actually get a sort of a soft landing for their company out of their home country without having to commit to the full move and the resource move in a time when it's really not physically possible. So, for instance, I have companies that are located overseas in different countries that are outsourcing some of their manufacturing here or uh, have a sales office coming up here because they themselves can't come here. So in that sense, they're able to access the U.S. and the global market through using this program. The, some of the other things that we're able to bring them is our mentors, our um, advisors and mentors are not necessarily Rochester-based advisors and mentors. They're the industry luminaries, so they're all over the world. A lot of them are in the U.S., but you know they're, they're coming from everywhere and have launched global businesses. So their job is to help these companies launch. So that's a big thing. And also the other corporate strategic partners, whether they're coming in to do development agreements or they're coming in to do investment, they are also global companies. So we have Asian companies visiting and U.S. companies and European companies. So the, the, when you join Luminate, you get that kind of exposure and access to the international and global community that is optics. Uh, we participate in all the international conferences that we can educate and give talks and and I really are trying very hard to make this program accessible to anybody, no matter where they are, and help the industry as a whole. And uh, the third cohort graduates uh, just recently completed the program. They've moved through it, and uh, it culminated in a virtual ceremony and awards presentation at the Frontiers in Optics and Laser Science Conference through the OSA. Talk a little bit about Cohort 3. Obviously, there were some uh, unexpected challenges that the startups had to navigate through given COVID-19. Talk a little bit about some of those companies and how they persevered. So, you know, it's a kind of an interesting thing. At first, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> we're approaching shutdown, and we have all these international companies, and people really had to get home. So we moved all of our coaching sessions and our seminars, everything completely online so that you could access it from wherever in the world you are, and suddenly, suddenly we get even better engagement. We had to extend the program instead of being six months. We made it nine months so that we could get people a chance to really get settled. But some of the interesting things that came out of having to run this program partially remotely, because some of the companies were here, some were not, is that companies that were suddenly struggling, if we had a company that had to get certain data to an investor, no matter what, and where they were, the labs were all shut down. They're like, well, I don't know how to get this data, and our investor is demanding it. So you have no problem. Luminate will make a few calls to people who have labs in, in regions that are opening up and get your data. And so we were able to make those kinds of arrangements by you know, reaching into our network and saying, okay, who's in a, in a low-risk area? Can you run these tests? We're able to do those things. Also, we had a couple companies who, you know, for various reasons, like we'd like to launch our product, but we can't come to the U.S. right now because of all the restrictions and travel. No problem. We can get a marketing and sales team and a launch team here to help you get your product on the market on time. So it was an interesting exercise that was initially done to enable companies that, that got stuck in lockdown to help them still access the program. And it turned out to be such an asset that we discovered that, you know, this is one of the really good things about Luminate is that it doesn't matter where you are in the world, we can still help you get moving. And I think that one of the, some of the things that the companies found is that a lot of them are very, very frightened. If you look at early stage companies, Interestingly, the ones that got Luminate investment or other corporate or other strategic investments survived the storm better than those startups that were purely revenue dependent. 
And that's kind of a flip case of what you'd expect. Most of the time, you're like, oh, you want a company that has to make revenue. But suddenly, you know, revenue is drying up, particularly in the medical device industry. It's late. It's deferred. And if you're running on a shoestring and all you have is those sales, suddenly you can't make payroll. But if you have a Luminate or if you have another investor behind you, if there is a delay for a very good reason, they can understand and they can float you a little bit of time. Like we did. We gave them three months and an extra $20,000 each so they could survive the um, storm. And they did. And I had more than one company tell me that it was a lifesaver for them. It's really quite a contrast. And you talked about some of the companies that are providing medical innovation. Certainly that was at the forefront with this cohort. But it wasn't a um, a medical company. It was a photonic smart coding developer, SunDensity, who won this year's uh, $1 million funding. Tell us a little bit about SunDensity. So SunDensity is a really interesting company, and they have been working hard. They applied to Cohort 1 and got declined. They applied to Cohort 2 and made it into like a runner-up position. In each case, it was because they did not have, they hadn't come far enough along. But by the end of Cohort 2, they had actually, in their runner-up position without any money from Luminate, had developed enough data. Like, that's basically what we're looking for. And what they've developed is this technology that has the potential to just revolutionize not just solar cells. It's so much of optics technology. In solar cells, it enhances the performance of the cells by putting this coating on the glass that makes the light conversion more efficient. So if you think about it, I'm going to say this in very, very layman's terms. So to my photonics colleagues, I apologize. When you look at a solar cell, it only uses so much of the light that hits it because a lot of it is in wavelengths that are not useful. But this is a very, very efficient conversion coating that allows the solar cell to access those wavelengths and move them to a usable part of the spectrum. So the whole cell becomes so much more efficient. And SunDensity has shown how that technology has a great deal of promise. It actually works. It works in multiple different situations. And they were able to really move it along. And so they're going to be building their initial lines. They have other investors also coming in. So it's a very promising company now. It took some time and effort and a lot of work from Luminate to get them there. We're really excited about this company. Uh, It also shows you the value of perseverance. Uh, there's no question about it. The value of perseverance is is vital. Uh, but it also shows, to me anyway, it, it shows this factor that Luminate will, will stick with its companies. And I suppose the best way to gauge the success and impact of the Luminate Accelerator is through the, the stories, the success stories of some of its cohort graduates. Is, is that fair to say, or, or does, does Luminate stay in touch with uh, the companies it works with? Yeah, I think you can see that quite a few of them are doing extremely well. Let's start out with success rate in startup companies is, is really typically not good. Most of them you expect to lose a lot. And so I had actually entered this program thinking I'm going to lose some companies. We are sitting on entering cohort four. I don't have a single company that is, I mean, and that may change, but to this point, I don't have a single company that's gone into bankruptcy or said we're done. They've been doing quite well. We have some companies, oh, I look at Bounce Imaging, that's doing extremely well, and they make the 360 camera. We look at Intelon Optics, which is branching and growing and, and also doing really well. Double Helix has much more presence. They've won all kinds of awards. They've got placement everywhere. So one after another, I'm, I'm watching these companies. It's a slow climb in this industry, but they're really doing it. They're nailing it. They're getting clients. They're growing their value and uh, really returning to the community. We're talking to Dr. Sujatha Ramanujan, who is Managing Director of the Luminate Accelerator, which is now accepting applications for its fourth cohort. Why is now such an exciting time to enter this space? First of all, the technology is just bursting, right? So everybody can see all the different 
great innovative things that are happening in our industry. But for Luminate in particular, this is a chance, if you join our, our next cohort, to, to really grow that business. And we've, we've gotten to the point that we really know how to nurture and help a company grow, even through some pretty turbulent times, like this, the COVID times where hardware is tough and lab access is tough. We've been able to really help companies. So I think um, the industry is growing. The industry is hiring. And so it's it's not like the industry growth is slowed. It's just how do we get there? And so this is this is a chance for a startup company or an early stage company to access that. It's also a chance for a company that maybe isn't super early stage, but needs to access the U.S. market to suddenly find a way to do that through accessing Luminate. If they're having trouble with that, we could probably help them with it. Cohort for it is a little bit different in that we are starting it a quarter later to allow people to see what happens with travel and other things. It may or may not be possible for people to attend in person. They may have to do it remotely, and we'll have to see how that goes. So we're taking applications all the way through January 4th. And by the time the second quarter of next year arrives, we'll have started Cohort 4. So we're starting it a quarter later, giving people a little bit more time to think about what they want to do. And if they want to call and ask us about their application, we're always willing to listen and to get feedback. There is no time like the present. It's an exciting time in the optics, photonics, and imaging community. Thank you, Sujatha, for joining us and talking about the Luminate Accelerator. Well, thank you so much for having us on your program. Go to luminate.org if you wish to apply. It's an online application process. That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google, as well as on our website. Subscribe, never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.